Hello, I'm Guy Walters and this is History Now, a history podcast from Mail Plus. Now, if you happen to find yourself in Silesia, which is today part of uh, Western Poland 77 years ago, you might have chanced upon about 70 to 80 Allied airmen running around the woods. Now, you may wonder why they were doing that. Well, the reason, actually, is because they were escaping, and they were escaping from a German prisoner of war camp called Stalag Luft III. Now, for those who don't know, that was the POW camp that is the heart of the story, the celebrated story of The Great Escape. Now, I'm sure, like me, you've watched the movie The Great Escape. I mean, I watch it almost every bank holiday, either stuffed with Easter eggs or uh, stuffed with turkey, one or the other, frankly. And, uh, you know, I, I love the film. I love the cast. I love Steve McQueen. I love, you know, Donald Pleasant going blind. I love Dickie Attenborough. You know, it's all there. You know, cinematic greats, you know, doing great things. I love Steve McQueen's attempted motorcycle stunt. I know he's got the wrong motorbike. And of course, I love the music. There's there's just nothing to compare to Elmer Bernstein's score. You know, every time anybody hears those opening bars of The Great Escape, surely it sends a tingle down your spine. Surely, you know, it, it sort of makes you stand up straight and, and it makes you think of this kind of incredibly heroic story. That music just sort of conjures it up straight away. I don't know, it's a legend, it's, it's a myth, but it's a kind of real source almost of, of national pride, the story of The Great Escape, because we look at the ingenuity, the heroism, the bravery of these guys. And of course, there's this very seductive idea that by mounting The Great Escape, what they were doing was opening what seemed to be like a kind of second front inside Germany or a third front inside Germany that was really going to tie up the German war effort and was going to stick two fingers up to the Germans. And we also tend to think of all those young men, you know, in these POW camps because of films like The Great Escape and because of films like The Cold It Story as a kind of... Uh, gung-ho, unified bunch of brave young chaps who are all keen to do their thing for king and country, or president and country, or whichever nation they were from. And, you know, in, in reality, I'm afraid it just wasn't like that. And this is what I want to explore today, because so much of what we know about The Great Escape really is a complete myth. It's just not true. I hate to ruin it for you. I really do hate to ruin it for you. But I'm, I'm going to show you over the next 20 minutes, just going to talk a little bit about what we know about The Great Escape is largely built upon a series of books, very iffy books. Some of them are all right, some aren't so good. You know, the film, countless documentaries. And you even find that those who are on The Great Escape, when they're exposed to these films and books, they too start getting infected with the kind of alternative truth that's been presented over the years. So what I want to do today is to really sort of lift up the rug and see what lies underneath all these treatments, all these books and films and so on and so forth, and really investigate the true story of The Great Escape. Now, I'm doing this as a kind of preview to a free online live lecture with slides, with maps, with lots of whistles and bells that I'm going to be giving exclusively to Mail Plus members and people listening to this podcast. Now, to, to access that, you, you'll be able to find on all the normal social media channels, Twitter at Mail Plus, uh, at Guy Walters on Twitter. You know, I'm going to make it really easy. But where you go is a really good website where I give my online lectures, which is called Crowdcast. You just type in crowdcast.io slash Guy Walters and you will find The Great Escape Talk there. You simply register for free 
by using the coupon code MAILPLUS. Uh, that is M-A-I-L-P-L-U-S, MAILPLUS. You just type in that code and you'll get access completely for free. And it's going to be on Thursday, the 15th of April in the evening, uh, British summertime. And you'll be able to watch me live in my office, my lovely office. And I'll be talking you know, at more length about The Great Escape and with slides. So this podcast is a kind of preview. This is going to give you a, a really good flavour, I hope, of the real story behind The Great Escape. Now, you may ask, why does this person, Guy Walters, know so much about The Great Escape? Well, I have to declare I did write a book about it. It's called The Real Great Escape. And the whole purpose of the book and the whole purpose of my understanding of The Great Escape is I want to demythologise it. I want to lift up that rug, as I say, and see what lies beneath it. Now, the reason why we're interested in The Great Escape is not just because it was a story of great heroism and ingenuity and sticking one up to the enemy. It is also a murder story. And I think this is something that's really important to remember because all those who've seen the film will remember that famous scene where Gordon Jackson and Attenborough kind of talk to each other in the field at the end and say, you know what, Mac, I'm sort of glad we did it and all that. You know, Mac, all this, the organisation, tunnelling, Tom and Harry, kept me alive. Even though we... I've never been happier. You know, Mac... And in reality, the way the POWs were murdered uh, was far more horrible than that. They were kind of shot in on their own or in twos and threes and fours on the side of the road by Gestapo officers, uh, you know, notionally being taken back into captivity, but they would be shot in the side of the head or the back of the head while they were urinating, you know, for, for a kind of a pee stop, if you like. And uh, it really was, you know, a really, really horrible series of executions of these poor young men who all they were doing was just trying to escape. It wasn't their duty. And that's something else I'm going to discuss, but it was something they wanted to do. And so I think that what you have to do is to look at the great escape through the prism of the fact that 50 of the escapers out of 80, approximately 80 who did get through, were murdered on the orders of Adolf Hitler. And this was a huge deal at the time. And even though, of course, the Nazis and the Germans are responsible for far greater acts uh, 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 numerically, of course, of murder. Uh, I can think of a genocide springs to mind, for example. There's no doubt that even during the war, even in April 44 and May 44, when these murders were discovered back in Britain, you know, it caused a sensation. And there was a memorial service, you know, despite all the deaths that had gone before throughout the Second World War, there was a memorial service for the 50 murdered flyers at St Martin in the Fields in Trafalgar Square. So, you know, th this was a, an enormously big deal. You know, the Germans just murdering 50 prisoners for trying to escape, notionally, you know, was known to be the utter lie that it was. So I think that, you know, you've got to remember that The Great Escape is a story, you know, it's an escape story, but it's also a murder story. And, you know, there were other great escapes during the Second World War. It was not an exclusive escape. So that is one reason why we can't say that the great escape is unique, because I'm afraid to say, everybody, that I think the French had the highest number of escapers in one go, one mass breakout during the Second World War. So that was a, a real <laughs> problem. If you're going to start saying the great escape was the greatest escape, it simply wasn't. There have been other escapes, of course, um, mass escape. So it really wasn't a kind of the uniquely big deal that we tend to think of it as being. So that's one sort of myth. You know, the Great Escape, A, wasn't the only Great Escape, wasn't the only mass breakout uh, during the Second World War. The other myth I want to briefly look at today is this idea that the POWs 
had a duty to escape. I can assure you that everybody felt that escaping was the decent thing to do, or a lot of people felt that escaping was a decent thing to do, but there was no duty to escape, okay? Now, I've really looked at this, and I know it may surprise some of you, but there never has been, and nor is there today, for servicemen, a formal duty to escape after you have been captured. There is a duty to evade capture, which is a very different thing from escaping after you've been captured. So, if you are shot down, it is your duty, and you survive, it is your duty to try and get back to your lines, okay? It may be very difficult if you're shot down over Berlin in, say, 1943. It's going to be pretty hard to get back to, you know, allied lines. That's going to mean crossing the channel. But nevertheless, it is your duty to evade capture rather than escape. Now, you know, a lot of men at the time did sort of feel it was their duty to escape in the same way as they sort of felt it was their duty to be brave. It was a kind of understood tacit kind of corporate acceptance that it was your sort of thing that you were sort of honour bound to do. But I, I do stress there was no duty to escape. And there was something that some of the prisoners were very much aware of. And I think that what you also have to look at is, you know, this other image, and this is the other myth I want to look at, it's this whole idea that you've got a kind of an escape-hungry bunch of chaps, you know, as you see in a film, who all want to run away, who all want to get out, or all forging maps, or all making up sort of tailoring and costumes and tunics to, to make them blend in to the Third Reich civilian world. And in fact, only about a third of the POWs had any interest in escape duties or escape activities, okay? The idea that they all want to do it, I'm afraid, is just bunkum. It's another myth. You may think that's just me being sort of conchy and pinko and a bit sort of uh, unpatriotic or a bit deliberately myth-busting, but I can assure you those are not my statistics. They're the statistics of POWs who are there. Those are the statistics of a man called Jimmy James, who some of you may have heard of who is, you know, one of the Second World War's most sort of noted escapers and had written a very good memoir, which I'm sure most of you have got. But if you if you just look at what Jimmy James has to say in the interviews he gave after the war, and there's one in the Imperial War Museum I've listened to, and there's also other other interviews which very much say the similar thing, only about a third of POWs had any interest in wanting to escape. OK, so that is a big kind of thing to take on board. So what were the other two thirds doing? OK, I mean, some of them were just doing nothing. They were lounging around and psychologically, of course, that was very poor for them. But they were just lounging around. Some of them were uh, studying hard to do their, say, accountancy exams. They were doing their degrees. You know, they were studying. They were trying to make good. They were thinking about their lives after the war. Because as the war went on, it became increasingly clear to most servicemen in the camp which way the war was going. You know, there was just no doubt that the Allies were on the winning side and all they had to do, if you're a POW in a place like Stalag Lufthree in the middle of a Silesian wood, was just to sit it out and you were probably going to be all right. Because that barbed wire, yes, it may represent your, uh, your, your captivity, but that barbed wire also represents your security. And after all, why would you want to escape? Why would you want to possibly try to get back to your own lines and then get back into an aeroplane only to be shot down again? Because what you've got to remember is that these thousands of men held in camps like Stalag Luft III, the Allied flyers had all been in plane crashes. Now, I don't know if you've been in a plane crash. I haven't been in a plane crash. I don't want to be in a plane crash. And if I survive a plane crash, I'll probably never want to get in a plane again. 
Okay, you know, most of these guys have been in plane crashes and seen their friends and comrades die in front of them. And the idea that you're going to risk your neck by trying to escape across Germany only to then risk your neck to get in a plane again, you know, seems sort of kind of almost illogical. Yes, you could say, oh, but it was their duty. Well, I have already argued it's not their duty. And then you could say, well, you know, there's something they ought to have done. But that's your expectation that everyone should behave bravely and as bravely as we all think we're going to behave from the comfort of peacetime 77 years later. I just don't think that's fair to kind of back project our own moral um, expectations or our own expectations of behavior onto these young men. Some of them had just lived through the biggest horrors that you know you could ever see and you're expecting them to go back and do that all over again. So only really a third of guys wanted to do it and largely they were what the other two thirds called the kind of tally-ho brigade. I suppose what we call a kind of gung-ho kind of royster doistering sort of a sort of slony alpha male come on lads that type and and there were kind of two-thirds were a bit more cynical about the whole process and thought hold on a minute you know as the crow flies were about six seven hundred miles away from biggin hill let alone you know how do you get there in you know indirectly so it's hard enough to fly from Saliglove 3 to biggin hill let alone actually make it back on foot or on train or any other way so it, you know, it really is, many felt, a complete mugs game. It wasn't worth doing. And in, in some camps, and not Stalaglov 3, you have this, um, you know, the antipathy between the escapers and the non-escapers was so great that in one camp, one of the non-escapers revealed all the escape plans, wrote them down on a sort of sheet of paper, put them in a tin can, sealed up the tin can, chucked the can over the barbed wire into the German part of the camp in order to reveal all the escape activities that were going on being organised by his fellow countrymen. I mean, obviously that feels like an act of treachery, but the reason why he did it was simply because he knew that all these escape activities were really you know, making life uncomfortable for those in the camp because the Germans would come in and punish everybody or take away certain rations and things like that. So actually, it just made life difficult. It made life a bit of a pain. You know what, guys? Just, just, just give it a rest. Give it up. Do what we're doing. Put your feet up. Sit out the war study for your exams, think about the future. Don't risk your neck on a foolhardy mission that is a kind of guts and glory, totally pointless exercise, total waste of time. And that is, you know, a big, big division between a lot of the POWs. It caused a lot of resentment, you know, and that is not something you see in a film like The Great Escape, um, you know, and I think that's a really important thing to take on board. And I, and I know it sounds unpalatable, but I do stress, go back to the memoirs of people like Jimmy James, listen to their interviews, and it's all there. It's not just me. Now, another sort of myth about The Great Escape is this towering figure of the man Roger Bushell. Roger Bushell was the architect of The Great Escape and he's kind of known as Big X because he's in charge of all the escape activities. And Roger Bushell is uh, famously played by Dickie Attenborough in the film. They, they call him Bartlett in order to give themselves a bit, bit more fictional leeway. And in the film, he's presented as this sort of very sort of enigmatic and yet charismatic figure who inspires an enormous amount of loyalty and is the architect of this brilliant escape and who decides that um, what the Great Escape's going to do is to really tie up the German war effort. I'm going to cause such a terrible stink in this Third Reich of theirs that thousands of troops that could well be employed at the front will be tied up here looking after us. Oh. By putting more men out of this perfect camp of theirs than have ever escaped before. Oh, well, not blitzing out two or three or a dozen, but 200, 300, scatter them all over Germany. So what we're looking at here is two parts of the Great Escape myth. We're looking at the character of Roger Bushell and we're looking at this whole idea 
of how uh, uh, Bushnell's Great Escape is going to, you know, really, you know, tie up the German war effort or do 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 some something to, you know, annoy the Germans enough to make them commit men and resources to rounding up Great Escapers rather than to the war effort. Okay, I am going to call this as as a real problem. These two things are a real problem. In many ways, Roger Bushnell was a very problematic figure. There's a very good biography uh, about him written by Simon Pearson, and I, I write about him a lot in my book, The Real Great Escape. Bushnell came from a very uh, well-heeled South African family who had made money out of mining. Uh, he had been to Cambridge, where he had spent his time largely larking around. Uh, he, had, he had completed about four terms, and he had kind of scraped a third in law from memory, and he became a barrister. Had a lot of money, used to sort of, you know, get angry letters from his dad back in South Africa to London saying, you know, you're spending too much money, Roger. You know, Roger was running around with a fast crowd, you know, members of, you know, gentlemen's clubs like Whites. Uh, he flew uh, planes for the Millionaire's Squadron, a kind of reservist squadron in the 30s. You know, there was a lot of larks shooting, royster doistering, shall we say. Uh, whenever he was up in the air on the radio, uh, the sort of ground controller would sort of blush at his use of language. You know, he was very much what we today call an alpha male, you know, a very sort of hearty chap. Um, you know, and I think he sort of uh, was you know, broadly quite popular. But I think there were there were people who would sort of regard him, you know, with probably with a certain amount of sort of um, yeah, distaste, maybe too strong a word. But I think he was pretty arrogant. I think he was pretty, you know, I think he divided opinion. I think I think that if you were his mate. You saw the point in him. And I think people who weren't drawn to that type of personality would have regarded him with suspicion or thought him as probably sort of somewhat shallow or arrogant, I suppose would be the word. And so when he arrives at um, Stalag Luf III in the middle of the war, um, you know, he's been a prisoner since May 1940 when he's been shot down on his first day of operations as a squadron leader. You know, that is not the idea of, of, of a sort of alpha male, Roger Bushell. You know, he's not the type of man who wants to be shot down on the first day he's flying. You know, that feels pretty ignominious for him. Um, and so he spends his entire war trying to mount escape attempts. Now, you know, he's almost successful. He gets the Swiss border at one point. You know, he's got, you know, the right stuff to be a great escaper. You know, he speaks the languages. Um, he's got a lot of bluff. He's quite much more worldly, a little bit older compared to other POWs. You know, he's seen Europe before the war because he's been a pretty good skier. So he's been a kind of sportsman. He's been all over kind of places like Germany and Switzerland and France. So he has that sort of gloss of sophistication that enables him to sort of, you know, knows how the continent works, shall we say. And that stands him in good stead when he's making all these escape attempts. But, you know, by the middle of the war, he's dispatched off to Stalagluf III, which is regarded as a high security camp. And it's there that he organises... Uh, the digging of these famous three tunnels, Tom, Dick and Harry, that are going to form the basis of, of the Great Escape. And it's his idea is that one of these tunnels is ultimately going to get 200 men out a night, like clockwork, night after night. And, you know, his biggest dream is they're just going to kind of empty the camp, you know, without the Germans being able to do anything about it. Now, this this is a great idea in practice. You know, it has a sort of seduction that you know, he's had a bad war in the sense he's been shot down. But what he can do as squadron leader Bushel is to lead, you know, the greatest escape attempts almost of any war. And he's going to sort of cover himself in glory that way. OK, fair enough. You know, that's got its own merit. But at the same time, 
the idea that you're going to cause the Germans huge amount of hassle by doing this is deeply flawed. And this is something I want to go on to now. But just before I do that, I just want to round up one more bit about Bushel. You know, he really would alienate some of his fellow prisoners because he would go around huts telling them to get on and help. And some of them would refuse. Some of them would regard him as being a bit of a lawyer, if you know what I mean. And I apologise if you are a lawyer, but I think that's kind of shorthand. It can be shorthand for this, you know, the idea you're being a bit didactic, you're being a bit bossy, you're being a bit argumentative, and you're winding people up the wrong way. And certainly you get the impression that Bushel did wind people up the wrong way. If you were a committed escaper, then Bushel was your kind of messiah. If you weren't an escaper and two thirds of people weren't, then you may have regarded Bushel quite differently. So I think that he's a very divisive figure and you don't see that in the film. And I think that that complexity, I think, frankly, for my money, makes a better story because, you know, people aren't just either heroes or villains. You know, there's something in between. I'm not saying that Bushel was a villain per se, but I'm saying his, his personality was complicated. And I think people's reaction to him was varied. But as I say, he has this great idea that he's going to lead this huge attempt that's going to really queer the pitch of the Germans. It's going to tie up valuable men and resources. And, you know, they're going to have to run around Germany hunting for all these great escapers. And that's really going to tie up a lot of time for the Germans. Well, you know, that may be true if you're going to get 50,000 men out or 10,000 men out. It's not going to be true if you get 8,200 men out. It really isn't true. And furthermore, there's this concept called blowback that you may try doing one thing, but actually in order to do that, and if you achieve that, what you do is you end up causing a kind of, you know, a blowback towards you. You actually do your own side more harm by, you know, carrying out an operation such as this. Now, let me explain, you know, what I mean by that. If you look at 1943, a man called Wingsday, one of Bushell's um, you know, colleagues on the escape committee at another camp, 1943, led another great escape in which around 43 men bust out. It was, in its way, another great escape. Now, whenever there was a mass escape from a camp, the German security system, if you like, would call what was called a Großfandung, a huge alarm. OK, and this huge alarm would mean that just about every man in Germany, who wasn't doing anything else, any man in uniform, essentially, would be told to keep an eye out for the escapers. Now, what you're not doing is pulling off people from the front lines on the Russian front. You're not telling people to go back, you know, from the Russian front to hunt escapers. You're not affecting the war effort. The people you're using are the criminal police, the Kripo. You're using the Gestapo, the secret state police, as they're called. You are using members of the German equivalent of the Forestry Commission, the Forestry Service, using Hitler Youth, you're using Home Guard. You are using Grenzpolizei, they're the, the um, border police. You are using, you know, people from the motor transport police, you name it. You are naming every man who's not doing anything else to man the odd checkpoint, enhance security on trains and so on and so forth. Now, what you're doing is you're using people who aren't doing anything else to hunt for the great escapers or simply to improve security at checkpoints, level crossings, the club of places where escapers are going to head towards. Now, in the previous Great Escape, masterminded by Wingsday in 1943, during the Grossfandung, during the Great Alarm, what happens? The Germans arrest all 43 of them. I think one of them commits suicide. So they round up all of them. But in total, under the enhanced security situation, they also round up another 14,000 other escapers. OK, so I'm talking about people escape, other escapers escaping from POW camps, 
forced labourers, you know, trying to get back to their home countries, uh, criminals on the run, um, you name it. What this does is it helps the Germans. You, the enhanced security situation basically uh, queers the pitch all over the Third Reich for other people who are trying to get away from the Germans. You're making life harder for everybody else on your side who's trying to run away inside the Third Reich at that time. So, you know, you really are making life harder for yourself. And what happens is that Bushel and his colleagues, they're aware of this, this blowback. Um, and yet still they persist in this idea of doing a great escape. And you have to ask yourself the question, who does the great escape help? You know, it doesn't help ultimately the Allied war effort. It helps the German war effort because it's enabling them to put on an enhanced security situation and it enables them to round up lots of other people they regard as being criminals or as, as escapers. So in many ways, you're querying the pitch for your own side and you're actually helping the Germans. And don't get me wrong, the POWs were warned about this. One of the members of the um, Stalag Luft Three Commandantur, a man called Pieper, said openly to the prisoners, we know you're doing something big, we know you're plotting some sort of great escape, but actually that's just going to cause real problems for you for the reasons I've just outlined. You're going to make life tougher for yourselves. If you want to escape, and Pieper actually says this, get out in twos and threes. It's going to be much easier for you because we're not going to have this gross fandung, this gross alarm. It's going to be much, much easier. So don't do it. And yet still Bushel persists. You know, obviously you don't necessarily want to do what your enemy says. But at the same time, that was wise advice. And, you know, after the war, when some of the you know, camp guards met up with the POWs because the relationship was perfectly friendly most of the time, you know, they just said, look, your great escape was a silly thing to do. And some of the POWs were aware of this. They're aware of the fact that maybe this was more of an act of folly than an act of tactical genius, of strategic brilliance. Yeah, it was brave, but actually the reasons behind it were folly. And furthermore, the prisoners were also warned in early 44, January 44, if they were trying to escape, that the situation in Germany had changed, that actually escaped prisoners may find themselves in the hands of the SS and the Gestapo, and then no one was going to know what was going to happen to them then. Now, that is a really important point to take on because they were warned that this was going to be a very, very dangerous thing. You weren't just going to be necessarily recaptured and sent back to your camp if you were caught. Something bad may happen to you. The prisoners were told that there was a high likelihood that they might be shot. Who knew? OK, so there is a real elemental problem here in the sense that the, the prisoners know that, first of all, there's going to probably be this blowback to the Great Escape. And secondly, they are really risking their necks now. Now, under the Geneva Convention, POWs were allowed to be shot while trying to escape. They weren't allowed to be executed if they'd given themselves up and their hands were in the air, etc. So the Germans could always use this shot while trying to escape excuse as a kind of legal cover for any executions they were going to carry out. Now, of course, as we shall see, and as I'll talk about at more length in my talks on Crowdcast, which I hope you come to, that obviously, that legal obfuscation starts breaking down very, very quickly when 50 people are shot while trying to escape, because it's quite clearly, you know, a load of nonsense. So I think these are the kind of big myths. And, and there's another myth I just want to, you know, get to the bottom of. And it's this whole idea of, I know it sounds trivial, but it's the weather in The Great Escape, the movie. Now, in The Great Escape, the movie, the weather, it's in glorious Technicolor, and it's blue, and it's green, and it's sunny and it's warm 
And, you know, I suspect the guys who spent you know time on that film set probably got a suntan by the end of the shoot. You would not have got a suntan in March, April 1944 in Stalagla 3. Oh, no. No way would you have done. The weather was foul. It was unseasonably cold. It was kind of naught degrees, minus two, minus three at night. And I've got some of the old weather charts and they show it to be really very, very unpleasant indeed. And, of course, the POWs, you know, they don't have Gore-Tex. They don't have lovely warm clothes in the way that you might want to do if you're tramping around in the middle of the night in sub-freezing conditions. No, the, the problem they have is that they are wearing you know, very much the wrong sort of clothing. You know, some of them are wearing just the equivalent of what we're today called chinos, right? So lightweight trousers. They're getting very, very cold indeed. They don't have necessarily gloves. They don't have hats. They're wearing kind of civilian clothes that obviously... You know, they don't want to get too muddy and covered in sort of, you know, wet, snow, slushy, muddy, icy rubbish all over them. But of course, if you're, you know, hiding in forests in the middle of the night and need to the clothes, they're going to get dirty. And during the day, you're going to look very, very obvious. So that was another massive difference between the film and the real story of The Great Escape is that the weather was appalling during the actual Great Escape. And it was, you know, very, very tough escaping conditions. So the idea that you are going to make your way across country with minimal rations, minimal cash, a very basic forged pass in your in your pocket, wearing the wrong sort of clothes, and you're going to make your way as the crow flies hundreds of miles back to, to Britain, uh, but you're going to somehow get across Germany, you know, really, I'm afraid, is just really not possible. So I think that's just a kind of, you know, a little introduction as to you know some of the reasons why I think The Great Escape Story is a bit more problematic than the film presents. Now, I've just touched on some of the things I want to talk about in my talk, my Crowdcast talk, and that I'm going to talk about lots of other things in that talk. I'm going to talk about the whole notion of the construction of the tunnel and whether it fell short. That's another exciting part of the film. I really want to look at how those passes were forged because I didn't believe for a one that all those passes were actually forged by hand. And I'm going to reveal in my talk on Crowdcast how those passes really were made. I think it will surprise you. I also want to talk about those uniforms and those escape uniforms and how, how the POWs actually made them. And I also want to talk to you about some of the routes they took. I want to talk to you about how actually when the escape was rumbled, how the people who were most in trouble weren't the POWs, but their German guards. And I want to explain the reason why for that. And I also want to show you all sorts of fantastic original archive images that I've dug up in the National Archives and the RAF Museum. And what I also want to show you are using Google Earth. Today, we can use satellite imagery to plot the routes these guys took. We can look at the camp from the air. We can compare that to old aerial pictures. So we can have a lot of fun, kind of really bringing it alive. It's going to be like a kind of live television show and you're going to be able to interact with me. Um, there's a kind of chat bar that you can type away and just ask me questions. I'll be on screen and I'll talk away and I'll be presenting. I think it's going to be a really nice sort of evening. And, you know, there are lots of things to look at. And we'll be looking at, you know, people putting on plays in the theatre and some of the social and cultural life as well. So it's going to be a really, really fun talk. And I really hope you do tune in. I hope this has whet your appetite. And as I say, do just uh, pop on over on your internet to crowdcast.io slash Guy Walters. That's my name, of course. And there you can just sign up and you can just use the coupon MAIL PLUS. Uh, and that'll give you free access. And, and you can sit down with a drink, cup of tea, uh, something a bit stronger than that, if you prefer. 
and you can just watch and then interact or you can just sit back and not. Don't worry, you're only watching me. I won't be watching you. That won't be a problem. So anyway, well, that's it for today. And I know it's just been me. Well, there we go. I hope that's been all right. And I really hope you've enjoyed this podcast and indeed all the other podcasts we've been doing. And if you do, then please do subscribe to us um, and leave a review if you like it on, uh, on Apple Podcasts, Google and indeed Spotify. Now, you can catch up with us on social media if you're on Twitter. Best place for that is at MailPlus and my Twitter account at Guy Walters. So in the meantime, I hope you enjoyed it and I hope to see you again very soon. Thank you.